Purposely Podcasts. We deliberately speak to social entrepreneurs, charity founders, and all-round awesome people to hear their founder story. A really warm welcome to episode 23 of Purposely Podcasts. My guest is Lawrence Marshbaum. It's someone I've admired from afar. He seemed to be doing some great stuff, innovatively raising funds. Luckily for me, I had a close personal friend who got involved in one of his 10 by 10 philanthropy committees in Australia. And before you knew it, we were sitting down and having a really good yarn virtually. Um, Lawrence absolutely explodes out of the block. So I asked him the question I've been asking a lot of my founders, which is, you know, what is the, the vision? What is the mission? And he just goes for it. We then settles into a, a really good conversation, which I think you're going to enjoy. Welcome to today to Lawrence Marshbaum. Have I got your pronunciation of your name right? Nailed it. Nailed it. Love it. Um, do you know what I'd like to start with is um, just to, to give people some context. So I'm, I'm sitting in Auckland, um, you're sitting in Sydney. It's a Friday and um, really good to connect. And just, could you tell me straight away in terms of context what the vision of 10 by 10 philanthropy is or was? And, um, and, and what you do? Our mission is simple. Um, we really wanted to try and solve two problems that we saw exist in the community. The first is that we think young professionals, young people want to do good, want to live lives of purpose and meaning, but all lack the time, the knowledge and the infrastructure to do so in a way that's meaningful to them and that makes a difference. And the second problem we wanted to try and solve is that I genuinely believe now, Longy, after having done this work for seven years, that real change in community happens from the ground up. That in local communities everywhere, from Auckland to Sydney to Brooklyn to Venice Beach and Los Angeles, there are real heroes operating at a grassroots level in community everywhere. And all these people, all these organisations and people struggle with the same problem. They lack the fundraising capability, the resources and the know-how tell people about the amazing work that they do and to raise the funds that are crucial to sustain their ongoing impact. So 10 by 10 was created as a movement to solve for these two problems. And what we do is we run events globally across the world that create a marketplace to solve for these two problems and bring these people together. Our model 10 by 10 starts with a committee of 10 people, gets them to invite 10 friends, each contributing $100, so 10 by 10 by 100 is $10,000. And we run events in, in, spaces all, in spaces that can be, you know, with Helm and Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, all disused warehouses. And we invite the 100 people to come together to a room and everyone gives their $100 in advance. So we've got $10,000 in the room at least. Generally, we ask the, the, that committee to go and match fund the money from corporate sponsors or other donors. So generally, we raise on average $20,000. And we, are in, and we empower that committee of 10 people to go out into their local community and find three grassroots organisations coming up with innovative solutions to complex social problems. Those organisations come on the night and they pitch for five minutes to the audience. There's five minutes of questions from a dragon or a shark, like modelled on the popular show Shark Tank or Dragon's Den in the UK, as you would know it. And then after they hear the pitches, the audience decide where to they allocate their $100. When they arrive, we give them their $100 back in the way of two $50 charity vouchers. And after they hear the pitches from the three grassroots organisations, 
we empower the audience to decide where they give their money. And we do two other really important things at each 10 by 10 event. At the, at the end of the event, we ask all these organizations what help they may need from the audience in non-financial ways. In our room of 100 to 150 people at 10 by 10 events, there are people from a wide variety of skill sets. There are accountants, there are graphic designers, there are people with knowledge, there are lawyers. And so all these organizations often need help in, in non-financial ways. So we operate a marketplace that connects skilled volunteers with the charities. And then at the end of every 10 by 10 event, without fail, we ask 10 new people from the audience to raise their hands to be part of the organizing committee for the next 10 by 10 event, which means that we're never pulling on the same pool of people and they were always growing and scaling. Wonderful to hear a founder talk about their mission with such passion and clarity. Enjoy the next part of the interview. We've over 250 charities. We've had 12,000 people come and we've distributed over $2.5 million to charity. And that's a phenomenal um, success and really gaining traction. And I had the real pleasure, thanks to you, sir, and, um, and really enjoying an in-person event, because I know you um, guys pivoted during COVID, but in-person events in Auckland. Um, and, you know, really good atmosphere in the room and some super grassroots charities. And I think that's often, it feels like your focus, getting to those charities who haven't got big infrastructure, who struggle to get funding. Would that be true? That's right. That's right. As I said earlier, I really, we really believe that we see our role as unearthing. Our role within the philanthropic ecosystem is almost a role of venture philanthropy. It's unearthing these grassroots organizations that are working community, that, it, that, that, ha that are solving a real problem that exists and trying to plug them better into the broader community, help them with funding, but also help them get access to people with the skill sets that can help them, these organizations scale and increase their impact. Mm. And in preparation for this call, it, it kind of jumped out at me that the idea for this um, that you had was, was around um, getting a little bit irritated or a little bit grumpy about um, maybe people around you not engaging with philanthropy or giving or charity, or is it more like traditional approach didn't quite resonate with you? What, what was the spark for you? Yeah, I think it was a bit of both. I wouldn't say that like, I, I wouldn't say that my, you know, my, my immediate circle of friends or people I associated with are apathetic toward, toward it. It just was a real passion of mine to like do work in the community. And I just found when I was asking all my friends continually to be in support of all these charity events that I was doing, it, it got to a point where they were like, like, dude, can we just go to the bar and have a beer and like watch the football? Like why, every, like, why every time are you inviting me to another charity thing, you know? So I realized that it wasn't sustainable if it was always on me to go to my immediate network each time to like schlep my friends along to like the next charity thing I was involved with. And then in order to solve that problem, we really needed to create a movement that where everyone leveraged their own social contracts with all their friends to get them in support of it. So I think that was, um, that was certainly like the first problem I was trying to solve. And the second problem was, you know, like you, like you referred to, I, I think we've moved past, you know, the, the cake bake or the gala dinner model of philanthropy. I think young people genuinely, genuinely want to feel more connected with the cause areas they, they, that they're supporting. They want to touch and feel the impact they're making and they want to understand that where their money's going. And so when you can empower a younger audience to be in control of that outcome, you get better engagement 
um, and I think a better model for philanthropy, particularly with engaging young young people. Because I think for me, you know, the death by auction, you know, you, you get an invite to go to a charity um, ball, you head long, you, half the audience don't know what the cause is or anything about it. Uh, they, they give some money, but it's the engagement levels minus. And, um, you know, what, what has struck me with your event in Auckland, actually, it was all about the, the cause, you know, all about the impact that the night could give those charities. Um, what, does it, any, because, you know, it comes down to someone standing up in front of people and pitching, you know, it's this dragon's den, and then there's ultimately, of the three, two could walk away without any cash, which I know, you know, like, it doesn't fully happen, because you've explained that it doesn't fully happen, but, um, and, and something I've learned is actually, some people can pitch better than others, but actually doesn't diminish the course. So, have you sort of factored that in? That's a, that's a very fair question. Um, so just to be clear, all the organizations always walk away with money on the night. So everyone that arrives, there's $100 that, he, that, they, that they have in terms of the charity, the charity um, vouchers, and then they hear three different pitches. And so genuinely, what we've found is that the money is generally evenly split around amongst the three charities. Although in the situation, in, like the event that you went to in Auckland, there was one charity, Orange Sky Laundry, an amazing organization that many people will be familiar with. Um, we actually funded their first ever band in Sydney that wash and dry, that run a mobile laundry service, washing and drying the clothes for the homeless. That cause resonated particularly with the Auckland audience that night because they were raising money for their first ever band in Auckland. And that, that received more of the money than a couple of, than, than, than the other two charities that pitched. The other two charities still obviously um, were successful in raising money. So, um, and, and any additional match funding, we always split evenly across the three, the three charities. So no organization ever walks away with nothing. We're very conscious and cognizant of the time that's required for the founders to come and pitch and tell their, sto tell their story. Um, so we always, we always like to think that our model does support all the organizations in some way. Um, and they always walk away with some sort of financial benefit. But the point you raise around does one organization, is an organization biased or preferred, do they achieve a better outcome as a result of having a better pitch in the format that we run? The answer is yes. Now, part of the role we're trying to play in the ecosystem is to upskill and the skills of those organizations so that they are effective at, at telling their stories, that they can be connected to donors. And in that context, in the, in the, in the, in the world in which we operate, if we incentivize our, those organizations to have their presenters deliver presentations in a skill and effect, skilled and effective manner, and they receive more funds as a result of that, that is an incentive, I think, that, that exists in the model that is productive, you know, that we're trying to encourage our, the organizations we support to get to that level um, to be able to raise funds and to be able to go out into the community and, to, and sell their story. Yeah, and um, I think it's true. And we, that. we run training alongside the events to help them with that as well. That's fantastic. And I think it's true also that actually um, it's all about authenticity anyway. So, um, you know, the people I think those three people represented that I saw, you know, really authentic, really um, close to the mission. Um, and so the odd swear word, you know, imperfect presentation is not important. Actually, you know, the cause um, causes were, were really well framed. Um, just, just focusing on you a little bit. So you're a, you're in this um, unique position where you are, a, um, you know, you're scaling us uh, beyond startup, well beyond startup, and 
you've got all the stresses and strains of um, growing and, and a business, but you've also got a day job, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm a portfolio manager with some super, one of the large Australian superannuation funds. So yeah, I have a very serious full-time job as well. How do you, fit it, how do, you do it all? Well, I'm fortunate to have a, an amazing team around me, a great board that's very engaged and two amazing um, staff members that we have working in our Sydney office, um, our CEO, Nikki Andronicus, um, who's been with us now just over a year, um, is, is, has been a gift and brings an amazing um, passion and energy to the, her work with 10 by 10 and, 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 like, and, and, and has really done an outstanding job. Um, and she's supported by um, Benita Transparent, who is our event and marketing co coordinator. So I've got a great, like any business, we've got a great team around us. Um, and um, I think, you know, I've been able to leverage the relationships I've been able to form in the financial services sector to be of service to 10 by 10 in the community in a way that I think is, is productive. And um, I've also often wrestled long years, I'm sure you have, you know, with, with finding a way to live productively both lives, to have a full-time career outside of the not-for-profit sector, yet still do work that's really, that's impactful and, and still able to, to grow and scale 10 by 10. So, um, and, and I'm militant with how I manage my time and assign it and try and always focus on um, spending my time towards delivering outcomes, both professionally with Sun Super and, and with 10 by 10 as well. So, I've somehow I've been able to make it work um, and, and, and it's been an amazing journey. But I think in many respects, the two roles have been complementary to one another. I certainly don't think I would have done as good a job um, managing the portfolio at Sun Super as I would have without having, you know, doing this work also, which leads me to a great sense of well-being and, and, and uh, in life. Yeah. Interesting. What are your, um, I want to talk to you a bit about your degree, actually, your, your education, but just quickly, what are your disciplines? like daily disciplines? Because I think people talk about discipline, disciplines leading to freedom that make you, enable you do all of the stuff and I imagine have a social life at, you know, and be a good friend and maybe a partner and all that stuff. Yeah, well, look, it's a continual challenge and I think everyone faces it. For me, there's a few disciplines that I find really helpful and one of them is um, meditation. Um, I came to meditation, you know, a few years ago and find it to be a very valuable discipline uh, in terms of, uh, creating the space for me to be productive in my day and then daily exercise. I've, I'm, I'm, I've heard a great podcast with, uh, I'm an avid podcast listener myself. So it's yeah. a great honor to be on this podcast. Yeah. But I had a great podcast with Michael Lewis, the writer of, you know, he wrote lies, spoke and many great finance books. And, uh, he, he did a podcast with, with Tim Ferriss. He was talking about exercise being the greatest life hack there is. And I genuinely believe that I try and fit in some exercise every single day in some respect. And I just find that after having exercise or having done exercise, everything's clearer for me. Um, I can be more productive and I can leverage my time toward doing the tasks that I think are, you know, are delivering outcomes in, in either my professional life, my personal life or my philanthropic life. So I'd say for me, those are the two, the two, the two key things on a daily basis. Um, and, and um, yeah, that I, that I do that, that, that really helped me. Yeah, no, hey, I'm back at you on that. Um, so, you know, as I said, I was going to focus a bit on your degree. And only in the sense, really, that it um, jumped out at me that, um, you, you know, you didn't do a finance degree at all. So, you, you know, you've got 
Um, I've got down here a Bachelor, a bachelor of Arts and, and Media, um, you've got some law in there, and then you know you track that to your sort of impending kind of finance career, investment career. Um, but full circle to 10 by 10 philanthropy, it feels like, you know, because there's a lot of marketing um, and media going on in that. What, what was the, um, what was it like at university and what did you think lay before you? Like, was investment going to be the, the thing or probably not? Well, I, I think law is a fantastic discipline in irrespective of whether you end up practicing or not in terms of, you know, the way of thinking, a legal way of thinking and a framework that it teaches you. It's like, you know, the humanities, um, you know, in, in the UK, you lived there for many years, you know, no one does an undergrad in, a, in an area that they generally go and work in. They get a broader education, which then um, can serve, you know, can serve them in whatever field they go into. And so for me, Bachelor of Art Media and, and Law was, was more of a general education. I sort of realized midway through my law career that I wasn't, that I'd be an absolutely hopeless lawyer. And all the lawyers that I work with now um, agree that I would have been terrible at it. And I just don't have the attention to detail that's required and the, you know, to, 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 to do that, that work and to, and to stay the path. I think mean, if you become a successful lawyer, you've got to sort of be in like one firm or one practice, see it through to partnership. It's a real long slog and it takes a real someone who with that amount of real staying power and discipline. I wasn't sure I had that. And I'd always been more entrepreneurial um, and um, in, in, in my spirit and, 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 and had some opportunities to work in, in some other great organizations in finance um, while, I was, while I was actually in law school and sort of fell into that career. Um, but regardless of that, I'd always, always maintained through my family, really, and the, and the values that are instilled in me by my parents and the Jewish community in which I grew up in, a responsibility to give back, to live a life of, to that, a life that is um, purpose-driven, that a life of service to community is, is a really a rich life. Um, mm. And through my, the most interesting thing for me, Logmi, is that through doing the work with 10 by 10 and having this work in, and working in this finance, finance world, the definition of success changed for me. I always saw previously as I was growing up working in finance that success was defined in monetary terms. You achieved some degree of status or um, some degree of status in terms of, you know, the money you made or how, what position in the firm you, you worked in, you elevated to. Yet when you do work in community, like the work that you've done as well, success is defined in different ways. It's about the contribution you've made, the people you've helped. And when I was able to flip that definition for myself, a deeper sense of purpose sort of aroused in me and, I, and a commitment to this work um, has, will always be part of my life. And I, and I think it was a real meaningful shift for me to, to realise that like success doesn't need to be defined in the metrics of the way in which like traditional work may define it and that it can, yeah. be, it can be multifaceted and diverse. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ultimately more satisfying. So if you go back to, so you talk about being entrepreneurial. So is there... Is there something you did entrepreneurial as a kid that kind of is a forelayer for what you're doing now? Do you look back and? Yeah, well, when I, when I, when I finished, when I, when I came out of high school, I, I, with a bunch of friends, we, with our four of us, we started a web design company. It was like very early days on the internet because we realized that all these businesses in the community didn't have websites and they, that, that this was going to be a real thing. And we, we went out and built them. Now, the problem was, like, we started this web for me, was that the web design company we started, we were four mates in school. The other three guys all knew a lot about web design. They were very technically savvy. 
they were very astute in that whole world. And I had no idea. Like I was just hopeless. So I was like the sales guy out there, like selling the dream. Um, and then, and then I, uh, I realized that I didn't have much value to add outside of that. And so then I, I sort of ended up leaving that, that business, but the guys went on to um, build that business into a really meaningful business. It was called NetStarter. They sold it and they, you know, did very well out of that. Um, but it was always, there was always that. And then also there was always, I was always involved in community. I was always, I was the chair of the um, young division of the Jewish communal appeal. When I was growing up in Sydney, I took that same role when I went over to London um, working in the United Jewish Israel appeal over there and became founded the young division of the one-to-one children's fund um, with one of my amazing mentors in London as well. So I'd always sort of had, I was always quite entrepreneurial on the, on the business side but also on the philanthropic side, always had roles in community and, and always was trying to find ways to get young people engaged in giving. Yeah, because, you know, Jewish faith is, giving's just embedded, right? It's just right in the heart of it all. So I can understand how that, you know, coming from that context that you'd have that focus. Um, looking at your investment career, so I keep reading the old, old uh, the word or the phrase alternative strategies, and and is that because you you've got a good dose of creative um, soul in you? Huh. Well, I'd love to say so. I'm not sure that that's that. I didn't come up with the term. I mean, that the alternative strategy generally means investments outside of traditional equities and fixed income, and so that can mean you know, all, all different types, a general range of different strategies outside of those, which generally for a large institutional allocator, diversify the exposure away from traditional asset classes to those things that are deemed alternatives. So that could be investments, even things like investments in real estate or investments in, in, in debt against real estate or investments in um, transportation assets or um, energy assets. But there has been, you know, the proliferation of impact investing um, which has risen up really during my time um, working with some super to become a really you know, buzzword in the investment industry. Um, and I'm not specifically working in that part of our fund, although I do have a meaningful say in, uh, in, in, in our approach to it. And I've been part of various uh, committees internally that have considered how we as a fund can think more holistically uh, and better about investments that have a positive social impact. Um, and that's certainly a space that is that is growing um, and maturing considerably. Yeah, I think capital could be or unlocking capital to, to you know solve social problems um, is coming much bigger focus. And um, but it's still in, the, in its infancy, I think, isn't it? And and it, have you you know you've got this kind of um, view of the world? You know you're you know really um, all about giving back and a, and a sort of life of purpose. Um, on, on the investment side of um, how, how does it fit for you around social and ethical investment and and because um, you know I worked in the finance sector but one, with one foot very much in the charitable sector at the same time and actually social and ethical investment really only came on the horizon for, for the company I worked for relatively recently like it's still uh, probably only two years old but yet it's you know talked about a lot where, where are you on that? Profit over ethics well, and over and over, <laughs> and over um, social good. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think I read a book recently, and I, I'd encourage many of your readers to read it. And I'm, I'm sure you may have read it, um, called "Winners Take All" by Ananjira Hendas, and it challenges um, 
the frame, the traditional frameworks. I read this book because I, I want to read things that I don't always tend to agree with, and I thought this book would challenge my thinking. And, and to those of you involved in the charitable sector that haven't read it, I suggest you do because it, it really is. Um, it, it really challenges the fundamental construct of philanthropy in that philanthropy is traditional philanthropy is a bunch of people that tend to make money in whatever careers they they, they do. Um, almost agnostic to the social problems that their underlying business or investing may be creating. And then offset that with the philanthropy that they do uh, and then sort of feel good about themselves as a result. And what he basically does is challenges the whole construct and says, in some respects, well, hang on, your business, your, the business interest that you have are perpetrating the systems of disadvantage that is your own philanthropy is curing. And we know that like many of the family invest family funds that stuff these impact funds now are trying to make more conscious investments um, uh, in terms of their own investment strategies so that the, that the uh, so that their philanthropy isn't solving for the same problems they're creating as a result of the investments they're making so in some respects I think your question is getting at that and it's a really interesting philosophical and ethical debate um, from my perspective I'm a steward of capital for the fund so applying Lawrence's Mar Lawrence Marshbaum's value judgment on what an investment should or shouldn't do, I struggle with a little bit because I'm really a point. I'm really a, I'm an employee of the fund, and the fund has given me a mandate to invest in this on this basis. And applying my own value judgment to the way in which that capital is invested isn't. I'm sure it's an interesting philosophical question. Isn't I'm sure my complete. Um, it's it's not it's not my call to make. With that said. The fund has a very strict ESG guidelines and principles, and I certainly, where I can, you know, try to only invest in, in make investments that I think are, are, are will, that don't fall foul on ESG on the ESG guidelines. Um, but applying my own sort of moral judgment to the types of investments that I make with Sun Super's capital, I think, is a little bit dangerous. When you're in a position where you're running a fund, where your name is on the door, it's got a specific impact investing ethos. Or thesis that, that I think that's a little different. Um, so in answer to your question, it's a, it's a balancing act between managing the capital in a way that's aligned with the mandate that I've been given by the fund, um, but also not being obviously in contra complete contravention of my own values. And I think that's why working in a profit for member fund or uh, like Sun Super uh, works well for me. Yeah, and I really resonated your um, description of sort of older school philanthropy um, and it's sort of um, you know cleansing some some sins of the past potentially for people um, and it feels like we're getting a way to a, a different type of philanthropy a different type of future and, and also companies are you know building social purpose into what they do and how they do it and you know from how they treat their people to their suppliers um, you know all across the whole spectrum of business which is fantastic um, so you're an entrepreneur uh, You've got a day job, you're an entrepreneur as well, social entrepreneur, I, I want to call it. You um, have had real traction with 10 by 10 philanthropy. Um, there's a whole nice double of in-person, feel good, people get together to make it happen. And then the pandemic hits. Um, uh, tell me what it was like for you at that those kind of days when it first hit and the realization that life's going to change a lot and this is going to really impact on what we do. And then what, what's been the impact on, on you guys as a, as a movement? Mm. So, um, and, 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 and I had the benefit of listening to some of your other podcast um, guests, and I know that we're all, we've all struggled with this in the philanthropic sector, especially has been 
been a hard hit. Um, but to take it to, uh, you know, a brief story about one of the organizations we've helped, I mentioned Orange Sky before, and we, we funded their first ever bands in Sydney. And what these Luke and Nick, two amazing young social entrepreneurs from Brisbane, decided they didn't want to go into traditional careers in law and finance um, and, and set up these amazing uh, vans that installed washing and drying machines in, in these vans and uh, drove them around all the homeless parks in Brisbane and washed and dried the clothes of the homeless. And as they were talking to um, people about their situation, they, that, that as they, their clothes were being washed, they ran a mentoring service to talk to people about their situation. How did they end up in this, here on the street? A lot of people fall into homelessness and what, what steps could they take um, to, to work their way out of it? And when they pitched at the first 10 by 10 event in Sydney, uh, when they first pitched the 10 by 10 in Sydney, we were funded their first ever bands and, and now they've gone on to make an incredible impact and they've got about 30 bands all across Australia, just launched their first band in New Zealand um, and have, have, have some bands in the US as well. So the role that we play in the philanthropic ecosystem sort of resonated with me. And I recall just as COVID hit, walking past, um, I live in Potts Point or Kings Cross, like Potts Point, Kings Cross area of Sydney. There's, a bit, there's quite a little bit of homelessness here in the part of Sydney in which I live. And I walked past um, some, some, I've walked past some people that were sleeping tough on the street. And I thought to myself as the pandemic hit, like, where are these people going to go? And in that moment, I felt this sense of tremendous responsibility for the work that we do. And that irrespective of the challenges that we faced in that we run an event, effectively an events management organization, we gather people together, that we have to find a way to maintain the importance of our organization in the eyes of the people that we serve in the community. And we had a board meeting and it was a really heated board meeting, heated with just differences of opinion. A couple of members of the board were like, let's photo this thing, let's shut down the office, let's reemerge at another date, six months down the road when we can do events again and you know, keep, keep the funds that we have in, within the organization and save it for another day. But I felt that we had to maintain relevance in the eyes of our community. We had to serve those organizations that we still supported. And so with the help of Nikki and the amazing team at 10 by 10 and in our office, we pivoted almost straight away to a digital model, ran digital online events, picked out each committee globally in all the cities, the 11 cities we run to find an organization that was working at the front line of the COVID crisis in Sydney, we support an organization called Two Good Co, which helped women that were victims of domestic violence. Obviously, COVID caused a massive spike in domestic violence. In Melbourne, we supported Food for Change, supporting people living under the poverty line. Food insecurity is a huge problem for people living under the poverty line. In LA, we supported NAMI, an organization helping people with mental health. And obviously, the mental health um, impact of this crisis has been huge. So we had to try, so we found a way to maintain our relevance in the eyes of our community and to still be of service and to continue to exist. And even though it's been a hard year, we've run, you know, half as many events this year um, as we, we would have done normally. I'm proud of the pivot we were able to perform um, and still, you know, retain our relevance in the eyes of the community. And most importantly, serve the charities that we exist to support. Fantastic. Yeah, really good. And on a personal level, like, um some good, some bad, how's it been lockdown? So Sydney hasn't had some like Auckland hardcore lockdowns, but it's, there's still been some challenges. It's been challenging. You know, I was saying I, I, I was lucky to be, um, 
to go on a trip last I, I I spent a lot of the year the last few years living in the US with, with my work and I was lucky to go on an amazing trip with 50 different social entrepreneurs from all around the world um to Israel actually um last year an amazing trip called reality and I'm still very close with many of these social entrepreneurs they've all started charities or involved in the philanthropic sector all around the world amazing people and we catch up and I was chatting to the group yes about only a week ago and many of them were in LA in, in the US where obviously the situation is still so hard with the pandemic and in Sydney, we've been so fortunate. I mean, it's not the impact. We're going around without masks here, just as you are in New Zealand, and we feel very fortunate. But the impact on our lives is still merely material. If you run an events management organization, you can't have events, and your sense of purpose in, uh, in, in life is very much driven by the impact you can make with that type of work, and you can't run them. It really hurts you, right? So it's been really hard on me personally to try and you know, continue to manage this organization through this time, you know? I've been in a relationship with you know, my partner living in South Australia, border shutdown for most of the year, really difficult. And, and similarly, um, it's been, you know, with, with work, obviously working in the financial services sector, it's been a really difficult year. So irrespective of the fact that many of us, I, the physical space I find myself in is not COVID impacted, I still feel like the, the core elements of my life have been really shaken up by this. Um, and, and it's a global feeling that we're going through it so if you can be in any one place and the impacts of this year have weighed on you in 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 in, in, in inevitably yeah. and, and i think it's you know it must have been hard having a partner in in victoria which is they had a really hardcore lockdown could virtually couldn't leave the house almost and being um in, in another state um and open and, and trying to manage that i imagine that was difficult yeah yeah it's been it's you know my challenges are, are, are unique to me, but I, I'm, I'm not dissimilar to the, the challenges that all of us have faced through this year. So yeah. it's one um, thing that's like a global shared experience of sorts. Um, exactly. But, um, so one question I'm really interested in actually is, um, and we, as we sort of move towards closing up, but because um, you've got a you know, huge career in, in finance investment um, in the corporate <laughs> sector, you, you spent a whole bunch of time, in, as you said, in the UK. Um, also in the States, what are the things that stand out to you as really unique differences about the, I call, well, in the UK you call it a third sector, the non-profit sector, the charity sector versus the business sector, like, and, that, and that can be from the, how people act or it could be down to other things, but what were the differences for you? Well, I think the one thing that I think, you know, that, that I think, and I, I'm sure that your listenership is a lot of people that work in the sector. And the one thing that I would say, having working in the business side in, in, in the, the finance sector, and I, I lived, I've lived in New York for the last three years, like working on effectively working on Wall Street. And, you know, obviously these are people that are incredibly well remunerated, a lot of them, and, um, and have very intense jobs, but are, you know, obviously are very well remunerated for the work that they do. But what is undoubtedly true? is that regardless of how senior or how high up in any of these investment banks or hedge funds or organizations, a lot of these people are, they lack a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives without doing this type of work. And whilst a lot of people in the not-for-profit sector have to struggle under what I think is completely unfair sort of remuneration um, and in terms of it not being cognizant with the, the, the impact they make in the world, the deep sense of purpose and reward one feels from doing this work is, is of tremendous value. And, um, and I think one, the people that work in the sector shouldn't underestimate that, that you might look at a guy on Wall Street and think he's, you know, 
he's got a house in the Hamptons who made so much money, but without his, his soul still feels, and I sit in front of these people day in, day out, still feels like something's lacking because that depth of contribution, that depth of service to community um, isn't there because they just, their jobs are so demanding and then they just simply don't have the time. Um, and so that's certainly one thing that I've observed that I think regardless of whether you're a person working in the heart of Wall Street um, or working in a, a not-for-profit in Queenstown, Having a depth and sense of purpose um, is, a, is, a, is, is, is something that's deeply human. Um, and I think, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, one of my favorite books, um, certainly talks about that. And I think that that's, that's true, very true. Um, I might just share my favorite quote from that book, which is like one of my life mantras, which is that happiness cannot be pursued. It ensues and it only does so as the unintended consequence of a living a life that is dedicated to a cause greater than oneself. Fantastic, great quote. And I think probably a good, good place to end. Um, looking ahead for the future of, um, before we sign off, the future of um, 10 by 10 philanthropy and what would success look like um, next year, five years, 10 years? Yeah, well, I mean, this is effectively a call out to your, your audience and your listener base and to those listening to this, pod, listening to this podcast. But if you feel the call, to, 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 uh, to be part of one of our committees. We're in 11 cities around the world, in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the US and Canada and Hong Kong. Um, reach out, go on our website, 10by10philanthropy.com. You can connect to any of the communities, be part of the committee, be part of one of the events that organizes, um, that finds or identifies the grassroots charities that are working community that we serve. Similarly, if you work within one of these grassroots organizations or you're a founder of a not-for-profit yourself, Get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to profile and focus on your work. Um, the way in which 10 by 10 works is we've got a, we've systematized the whole process around event management. So we tried to make it as easy as our, for our committees as possible to plan and execute our events. Um, and so therefore, um, for those people considering being on a committee, it's not a, it's a time commitment of, of a couple of months and to see that through to be on a committee from all of those we've spoken about um, spoken to and we serve our committee members each year, they find it a tremendously rewarding experience. Um, and I'm sure anyone that's listening would find that to be the case. Um, and then obviously we're also always looking for supporters and partners um, who we can partner up with to, to help us uh, in, in our mission and our work, which is to, to be a, a vehicle to engage young people in philanthropy and to be of service to grassroots charities and connecting them with the skills um, the time, the talent, and the treasure, really, to leverage their impact in the community. And so success for us looks, looks um, like two things. I think it's almost short-term, medium-term, and long-term in what you, you were talking about. I mean, short-term success would just be getting back to where we were. We were running about 30 events a year, and our aim is to give a million dollars away, a million dollars a year, just through the, uh, the, the, the evolution of our events. Um, would be would be a great achievement to see us get back to that level. And in order to do that, we need the communities to, 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 to get back up again on their feet and run the events and the people to come, um, which has already started to happen. Um, and then meaningful, medium term success would mean scaling the impact um, beyond the existing uh, events that we're running and opening up in new, new, new cities and, and, and the model continually to continue to expand and evolve. But really, longer term, five years down the line, what I'd love to think to have achieved, and, um, and I sort of referred to this earlier, is is for us to be seen as a vehicle for venture philanthropy to help early stage grassroots charities connect 
efficiently to those organizations and communities that can help them scale their impact to solve some of the most systemic issues that we face in society um, that I think grassroots charity founders all around the world are most effective at identifying. And so if we can better connect those organizations with, the organi with people in community that can scale and effectively scale the impact and, and ultimately solve for the system, for many of the systemic problems that exist within, within society, that will be long-term success. And I hope for a world in which um, we can play our role in, in doing that. Um, and for me, that will obviously be a life well lived and a meaningful um, and a life of meaningful work. Yeah. And I think it is about solving problems. I mean, I, I know at least two causes that aim not to exist, um, which is a fantastic aspiration. Um, you know, massive well done to you. And I know you've got a really good team around you for making giving, I think, cool again and aspirational as well to be part of the 10 by 10 movement. Like there's huge amounts of aspiration you've added to the, to the mix, which is, is fantastic. And, and the events I went to, um, was absolutely superb and I came away really uh, empowered to, to uh, you know, shining light in my own giving and, and to do more. Um, thanks for joining me. Um, have, have a great day and a great weekend and um, I hope my audience can uh, check you guys out. Thanks, Longy. And, and uh, 10 by 10 gives is our handle on Instagram um, and 10 by 10 philanthropy on the website. And the last thing I want to say is thank you for creating the space uh, to allow me to share my passion um, with you and the work that you're doing on the Purposely podcast is really fantastic. 10 by 10 exists to serve heroes like you that exist in the community um, and live and, and do the amazing work that you do. So thank oh, you for having you. me on. Thank you for creating the space. Thank you for doing this work um, and have a fantastic day and weekend. Excellent. Very kind. Thank you, Lawrence. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. A massive thank you for listening to Purpose It Podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying bringing these stories to you. Visit our website, purposefullypodcast.com. Join our tribe. Leave your email address. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please hit subscribe. Please leave a review. Really appreciate it. 